Good morning. So good to see everybody on this beautiful spring day. Everybody enjoying spring so far. And everything's blooming right now. Love this time of the year. Turn your Bibles once again to the book of Hebrews. We are going to be getting to that text Johnny mentioned a minute ago. Um, there's people watching on the live video right now and are going to listen to this sermon later and aren't going to have a clue what I'm referring to. So I'm going to say it again because it, was, it just blew me away. Johnny Adams, one of our elders, he's on the praise team, sent me a text earlier this week and said, I've been reading in 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord showed up so much the priest couldn't uh, enter into there. In this tune, God is good, his love endures forever, just kept going through my mind. Does that line up with anything that you may be preaching on Sunday? And it just blew me away because I said, that's exactly one of the texts I'm going to be reading, talking about God's glory. And so it was just amazing how God orchestrates that. Of course, we wouldn't, shouldn't be surprised at things like that, right? I mean, that's how God operates. I mean, he's, he's involved in, in everything. And so it also tells me that um, he's got something in store for us this morning. And uh, I'm praying that today will be a defining moment in someone's life. Um, if you weren't here last week, I announced that we were going to be beginning a journey through the book of Hebrews, and it's going to be a, a journey that may take us uh, quite a while, and there are really two reasons for that. Number one, I said last week that uh, we were going to be taking some detours along the way, uh, looking at things that other than Hebrews on some weeks, just kind of taking a break from it. But the other reason really is because Hebrews is a book that you don't want to just try to hurry up and get through. There are truths in here that are really going to require us to just kind of just soak in and chew on and marinate in for a little while. And so we're going to take our time in that because I don't want us to miss anything that the Holy Spirit is, is showing us here it's a journey where the author is going to show us how Jesus is so much better than everything else that we are tempted to turn to and rely on. There is nothing better than him. And by the end of this journey, my hope is that that won't be something that we just know that we should believe, but it will be something that we genuinely know deep down in the deepest parts of our being Last week, we looked at the first two verses of Hebrews 1, and today we're going to look at the end of verse 2 that we didn't get to last week, but primarily just focusing on verse 3. And uh, as I said last week, don't take this as an indicator of the pace that we're going to be going through Hebrews. We're not going to just take it one or two verses at a time. In fact, next week, we're going to go from here all the way through most of chapter 2. But today it's primarily verse 3 because there is just so much packed in that one verse. And because it is still within the context of what we looked at last week, we're going to read verse 1 through 3 all together. So let's stand this morning in honor of God's word. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. God, your love does endure forever. And Lord, I pray that this morning, Lord, you would show us, you would show us, God, just what what is so powerful about that statement, about that truth, God, about your goodness that would cause an army to just go out and just uh, have a tremendous victory, Lord, that would just uh, cause a people to just have this genuine desire to just worship you and to do whatever you ask. God, I pray that we would see your goodness in such a powerful way this morning through what you show us in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week we learned what it means in verse 2 where he says, in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son. And I'll remind us again that whenever the New Testament mentions these last days, it's talking about a specific period of time. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return. It's the period of time that the letter of Hebrews was written and the period of time that you and I are still living in today. We looked at the different ways that God spoke through the prophets and in many ways and portions in, uh, before Jesus came and how they were really inferior to the way that he spoke through Jesus. Jesus makes sense of and completes everything that God said in the Old Testament. One of the points I made last week was that one of the things that verse 2 means and that in these last days God has spoken to us in his son is that God isn't saying anything new that he hasn't already said in Jesus. Through the death Life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, God has spoken his final and decisive word to mankind. He isn't saying anything new because he can't say anything better than what he has said there. When Jesus ascended back to the Father, God essentially dropped the mic, if you will. I mean, he was done. There was nothing else that needed to be said. Yes, he still speaks today. I'm not saying he doesn't do that. And he speaks to and through people. But the way that we know whether or not it is actually from God is if it lines up with what he has already said in Jesus. So this is how the writer of Hebrews begins the letter. And then he's going to spend the rest of it explaining why. Why God isn't saying anything new. Why Jesus is better than everything else. Why it isn't Jesus plus and just fill in the blanks with whatever we think we need in addition to the gospel. And then he begins to do that with the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. Last part of verse 2 that we didn't get to last week says, Through whom also he made the world. Now, why did the writer make a point to include this about Jesus? That through Jesus, God made the world. Well, one possibility is to make sure that we know that Jesus isn't someone who just suddenly appeared on the scene. Now, I'm surprised at how many people assume that Jesus didn't exist until Mary gave birth to him on Christmas Day. But he did exist before then. He has always been just as eternal as God the Father. Nor is it true that Jesus didn't really do anything or serve any great purpose until he came to earth. 
No, he has always been a very active part of the Trinity. When God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, he wasn't talking to angels. The us there was referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And right here in Hebrews 1-2, it says it was Jesus who was the primary agent of creation itself. And this echoes something that Paul said about Jesus back in Colossians in chapter 1. Verse 16, he said, for by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We used to raise um, a special breed of pig at our house called Gloucestershire Old Spots, or GOS for short. It's a heritage breed that's real popular among homesteaders and those who are really into growing their own food. Um, So we bought a male and a female, and we sold their offspring, shipping them all over the country. One of the things that this breed is is particularly known for is for the sows being really good mothers. With a lot of breeds of pigs, as soon as they have their litter, you got to separate them from their mom because they end up crushing them and and not paying much attention to them. But with GOS, you don't have to separate them. And they are the most uh, amazing mothers. And when you see them in that role, you, you understand why. Well, Daisy was our female. And the first time that she got pregnant, we were all excited, just counting down the days till she would have that first litter, which would be exactly three months, three weeks, and three days. That is the gestation period of a pig. When she was just a couple days from her due date, I went out to check on her. And we kept them in this pen that's about an acre and a half, two acres in size. It's half open, half wooded. She wasn't in her stall Uh, She wasn't out in the pasture, and so I started walking towards the woods to see if she was there. And sure enough, I saw her walking towards me, but I noticed something a little different. Something didn't seem right. And so I uh, looked closer and noticed that that she was carrying this huge tree branch in her mouth. She hadn't seen me, so I crouched down to where she she wouldn't see me because I just wanted to stop and observe to see what in the world she was doing. And so I watched her carry this tree branch and set it. Very carefully and, and, and particularly thought about place in this other pile of branches that she apparently had already been collecting. And then she turns around and goes back into the woods and comes back again with another big tree branch and sets it in a particular place. And then I finally realized that she was building a nest. I had no idea that pigs actually built nests like this. I mean, I thought they walled a little place on the ground, but, but I mean, th- think Big Bird on Sesame Street. It was a, a huge nest. I mean, it, she wasn't a little pig. She was 800 pounds. I only f- found one picture of her. RJ, you throw that up on the screen. I mean, Daisy was a big pig. That's her right there. Uh, so she was long. and That's not a good angle, but her back actually was about this high. That's how big this thing was. And so she had to build a big nest if she was going to lay in it. And it was huge, this oval shape with all the way around it, about two foot high, these piled up tree limbs that she had uh, collected. A couple days later, I went to check on her and sure enough, 
there she was laying in the middle of that nest with about a dozen little piglets. What was so fascinating to me watching that was that she instinctively knew what was going to happen to her. She had never had a litter of pigs before. But she knew what was going to happen and she knew what she had to do in order to prepare for that. She knew uh, she was about to give birth to this litter and so she set about making all the, the preparations for what would then be the biggest event of her life for sure. She made sure everything was just right and just really began setting the stage for this big event I believe that this is just one example of the way God has left his imprint on all that he created. Romans 1.20 says, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was made. Jesus, because he has always been just as eternal as the Father. He has always known what the plan was. He has always known what was going to happen to him and what it would require for for us to, to, to be brought into relationship with God once sin had severed that. It would be the greatest event that had ever happened in all of history. And so Jesus went about in creating the world, being the primary agent to do that. He went about preparing everything for it. He took an active and decisive role in creation setting the stage for the greatest event of all time for hebrews 1 2 to say that jesus is the one through whom the world was made was really for it to say that jesus was preparing a place for him to die and that was the whole point of creation that was what it was all leading up to and so if someone were to ask you to just just give me a, a definition of intelligent design just, just define creation as it is uh, played out in Genesis 1. We could define it this way, which is the first point if you're following along there in the bulletin. Creation is Jesus preparing a place for him to die. That was the whole purpose of it. He was setting the stage for the gospel. And like Daisy... He was also preparing a place to give birth, to give birth to a new race of people, a holy race, a people that he would have for himself to partner with him in displaying his glory on the earth. So this tells us that the death and resurrection of Jesus was so great because as soon as God said, let there be light, history was set in motion, building up to that one single purpose. So the next point is this. The whole point of history was the death and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so let's start unpacking verse 3 here. A couple big statements made. And the first one is that he is the radiance of his glory. What does that mean exactly? Well, if we go back to the Old Testament we find several instances where the glory of God was, was being displayed. And I want us to look at a few of those. The first one is in Exodus chapter 19, 
Um, I wouldn't try to keep up with me flipping back and forth in your Bible. I'm going to go through this pretty quick. You can write the references down and, and go look for yourself, but they will be up on the screen. In Exodus 19, uh, the Israelites had just left Egypt. They were now in the wilderness. God was about to call Moses up on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments. But before he does, he tells Moses to assemble all the people together because he is going to reveal himself to them. And so they said that on the third day, they were to all wash themselves and gather at the foot of Mount Sinai. There was only one rule, and that was that nobody could actually touch the mountain because if they did, they would die, just be struck dead right there on the spot. And so for them to have to wash themselves before they came there and that they couldn't touch it just illustrated the absolute holiness of God. He is so perfect and pure and pristine. He cannot allow anything less than that, anything, the slightest bit of sin contaminating it to touch him. Here's how his glory on that mountain was described, Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Can you imagine just seeing such an incredible event? The next one we're going to look at is in 2 Chronicles 7 said earlier, Solomon has just completed construction of the temple. He gathers all the people there. They put an offering on the altar. The priests are there to perform a a worship service. And after Solomon prays this long prayer of dedication, this this is what happened next, beginning in verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. And then finally in Ezekiel chapter 1. The book of Ezekiel begins with the prophet describing this incredible vision that he received. And part of it is described like this, beginning in verse 26. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. 
In every one of those instances, when the people saw the glory of God like that, there was an immediate response to it. In Exodus 19, they responded by worshiping God and declaring all in unison, all that the Lord has said, we will do. I mean, there was suddenly this intense desire to do whatever it is that God was was commanding them. In 2 Chronicles, the response of the people was to bow down and worship on their faces and declare the Lord's goodness. And Ezekiel's response to his vision of God's glory was to fall on his face and worship as well. And then God tells Ezekiel exactly how he was going to use him, what he was going to do. And some of that was not very good at all. There were some very difficult things that Ezekiel was going to have to endure. But listening to that and, and knowing what was before him, he didn't hesitate. He didn't question it at all. Because after seeing God's glory like that, he couldn't help but just had this burning desire to do whatever it is God wanted him to do, no matter how difficult it may be. Seeing God for who he was and all of his glory like that caused something to happen on the inside of these people. They all had this sudden burning desire to do whatever it was that God wanted. And I know some of you may be thinking, well, yeah, if I had an experience like that, I would probably respond the same way. I mean, thunder and lightning and and clouds of smoke and and fire and trumpet blasts. I mean, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't respond that way? But that's not happening now. Why can't we experience God like that? Because the truth is, you and I have been given something even greater. Even greater than that. All of those accounts of God's glory, as awesome as they sound, were just shadows of what was to come. Ezekiel even called his vision a likeness of the glory of the Lord. A likeness is not it. It, it, It's a representation of it. Your shadow is a likeness of you. It is not the substance itself. These were just the opening act of the main event Of God's biggest display of all of his glory. And that event didn't happen on Mount Sinai. It happened on Mount Calvary. Like the cloud that descended on the mountain. Darkness descended over Mount Calvary. And all the land in the middle of the day as Jesus hung on the cross. And as he took our sin upon himself. God's judgment thundered. And Jesus absorbed the lightning bolts of God's wrath. For our sin. And then he cried out with a loud voice, It is finished like the blast of the trumpets. And when he breathed his last breath, the earth shook. There was a great earthquake ripping the veil of the temple in two. Three days later, he rose from the dead in a brilliant display of God's shining victory over sin and death. This is what Hebrews 1.3 means when it says he is the radiance of his glory. This is the next point in the notes. What happened in the Old Testament was a radiance of his glory. What happened in Jesus was the radiance of his glory. It was the substance that all those other shadows were pointing to. And when we see that event, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus for what it is and understand Really understand what that means, to really understand what it means to have your sins forgiven and thrown as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. To know what it really means to be made righteous, to to be given the righteousness of Jesus when you know that you're not righteous. What it means to be called a son or a child of God. What it means deep down to have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the light of the Father's love, to know what it means to have the spirit of Christ himself living inside of you, to know what it means to be part of a chosen people that God would have for himself and that you are forever secure in his hands. To really know that and to see that for what it is, something happens on the inside of us that just comes bubbling out. We can't help but worship God and we suddenly have this great desire to do whatever it is that he wants us to do. And when you come to know and believe that that even applies to you, because I know it's a whole lot easier to believe that for somebody else than it is for you to believe it and receive it for yourself. But when it does finally sink in and you realize why God isn't saying anything new, because he can't say anything better than that. When you do come to really know that, you stop looking and longing for some new thing because you know there can't be anything else greater. Let's keep reading. Next thing verse 3 says, he is the exact representation of his nature. That means that anything that you want to know about the nature of God is found in Jesus. You want to know how much love he has? You find it in Jesus. You want to know what his attitude towards sin is? Look what happened to Jesus. You want to know how much he can be trusted? Look at the life of Jesus and how much he completely relied on the Father for everything. Everything we want to know about God or I should say, everything that God wants us to know about him is revealed in Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. He is exact representation of his nature. When it comes to ways to get to know God, there's nothing better than Jesus And then it says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. This also echoes what Paul said back in 1 Colossians. 1 Colossians, or Colossians, there's only one Colossians. Colossians 1, this time in verse 17, he said, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mentioned earlier how God has left his imprint on all that he created And I want to show you another example of that, which points to these verses. Some of you, I'm I'm sure, are familiar with this because it went viral when it first came out. Louis Giglio, who I'm sure many of you have heard, I think he was the first to make this connection where he talked about a certain protein that exists in all living things called laminin. Laminin is the substance that provides support and attachment to cells inside organs and allows them to function properly. Cells, of course, are what all things are made of. 
And laminin is the glue that holds all cells in their place. You know what a laminin protein looks like? (laughs) That is a model of a laminin protein under microscope. Is it just a coincidence that the very substance that holds all things together is in the shape of a cross? I don't think so. It's God's imprint. He upholds all things by the word of his power. In him, all things hold together. It's just another example that when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel, there is nothing better. I just love the end of verse 3. When he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author to say he sat down has a lot of significance. He didn't have to say that. I mean, he could have just as easily said when he made purification of sin, he went back to the majesty on high. But he made a point to say he sat down. Later on in chapter 10, he's going to talk about that again and the significance of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. But this was God's mic drop moment that I mentioned earlier. He sat down because there was nothing left for him to do. I mean, he had, he had done it. And it also means the next point. There is nothing God will do in the future that will be greater than what he has already done in Jesus. Nothing he's going to do in the future that will be greater than what he's already done in Jesus. Now, I know some of you have got to, to hear that statement and think, really? I mean, this is as good as it gets. No, the state of the world right now, the state of your life right now, whatever situation you may may be in, your health right now, no, this is not as good as it gets. But what Jesus has made possible to us through his death and resurrection is as good as it gets. And when you understand what that is, you know why. There is nothing better. The problem with a lot of us today is that we have just not grasped the magnitude or, or, or of what he's done or accessed at all what he has made available to us. To many of us, the gospel is still just nothing more than a Sunday school lesson that we learned when we were kids. It's just, it's just a story. Something that happened 2,000 years ago that has no real relevance for us today. But I'm telling you, it has tremendous relevance. Through Jesus, God has provided us a life far much greater, far much higher than most of us have resigned ourselves to accepting. Most of us are just stuck with this mentality. Oh, this is just as good as it gets. I'm just going to suffer through all this. No, Jesus has provided something so much greater for you. The problem is that we're just too wrapped up in ourselves to realize it. Don't get me wrong. I know that the return of Jesus and what is still yet to come is going to be glorious. It is going to be absolutely spectacular when he comes to consummate history and restore the created order back to its original state. I mean, my mind can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Everything will return to the way it was before sin entered the world. And the Bible says that every tear will be wiped away and every wrong is going to be made right. Satan and his minions will be eliminated forever 
Words cannot even begin to describe how good that is going to be. But make no mistake about it. Nothing that happens in the future will trump or be greater than what Jesus has already accomplished. In fact, everything that is going to happen in the future is only made possible because of what he did at the cross and the grave. The death and resurrection of Jesus was the climax of the story. There's not another climax. That is it. And so the last point, the end will just be the completion of what the cross has already accomplished. Just be the completion of what he already accomplished. Folks, the cross completely changed the course of human history and set into motion what will be completed when Jesus returns. And until that happens, you and I get to gaze upon and bask in the glory of God that has been revealed to us in Jesus. We get to keep discovering new nuggets of treasure of what the gospel is all about and what that means for us. If God gave it all to us at once, I don't believe we can handle it. And so it gives us just, it reveals a little bit at a time to us. And we just keep discovering how much better and how much more. And we keep saying, Lord, you you are good. You are good. You are good with each discovery that we make. And the more we discover, the more we realize there is nothing better. Let's pray. God, you are good. You have shown us your goodness, what you have done through Jesus. And Lord, we do confess today, we have been too wrapped up in ourselves to realize what you have made available to us, too consumed with our own desires, our own reputation. To understand what your blood has bought for us. And because we haven't found that satisfaction in you, we have arrogantly looked to other things to please us for our identity, for our value, for our worth. Lord, we know today because of your word that there is nothing better for all of that than Jesus so God I pray today will be that defining moment in somebody's life like I asked for earlier that they realize the things that they have been looking to the things that they have been turning towards in order to find those things for themselves God that they will realize that it can only be found in you Lord, I thank you for the times that you strip those things away, that you even take them out of our lives for us so that we would just be left with nothing but looking at you and seeing you for who you are. God, I pray for that revelation today. Lord, for those who don't know you, those who have not come to you through complete faith, in the finished work of what Jesus has done. For those who have doubted your existence, doubted your goodness, God, I pray that even now your kindness will begin bringing them to repentance, turning them to you. 
Lord, we thank you for what you've given us. Lord, help us to not miss one piece of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.